0: This week on the show, we have the DistroWatch review of FuryBSD BSD for you. We have LLDB updates on i386 for NetBSD. Uh, WPA on OpenBSD, considered a uh, lower-class citizen. Then we have updates on KDE on FreeBSD. The travel grant for BSD CAN is what we mentioned as well, because people should uh, supply or apply for that one. As well as ZFS datasets for testing IOKH within a jail. And more news in this week's episode of BSD Now. BST Now, episode 338 IO Cage in Jail. Recorded for the 19th of February, 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Hi, hey, welcome to this episode and we're jumping right into the headlines without further ado of anything uh, with DistroWatch Fury BSD review. Yeah, uh, so Jesse Smith
1: uh, over at DistroWatch has produced a review here of FuryBSD, saying FuryBSD is the most recent addition to the DistroWatch database and provides a live desktop operating system based on FreeBSD. It's not entirely different in its goals from NomadBSD, which we've also discussed recently. I wanted to take this FreeBSD-based project for a test drive and see how it compares to Nomad and other desktop-oriented projects in the FreeBSD family. FreeBSD uh, supplies a hybrid ISO-USB image, which can be used to run a live desktop machine. Uh, There are two desktop editions currently available, both are 64-bit only, one of XFCE and one of KDE Plasma. The XFCE edition is about 1.4GB in size and is the flavor that I downloaded. The KDE Plasma one is more than double at 3 gigabytes in size. Booting from the live media brings up an XFCE 4.14 desktop environment. Along the bottom of the screen is a panel that holds the application menu, task switcher, and system tray. Icons on the desktop uh, open the Sunar file manager, launch the system installer, provide quick access to getting started documentation, etc. There are two more icons to access the XOR configuration options and show system information. Uh, The getting started doc is a quick reference text file containing command line instructions for setting up networking and installing video drivers. The system information icon opens the Firefox web browser and displays a locally generated page which contains general information about the computer and its resource usage. So looking at the installation process, launching the system installer opens a window that displays a series of text-based menus and prompts. The first screen asks us to make a host name for your computer. And then we're shown a series of ZFS options. We can choose which disk to take over for the file system along with any uh, RAID options whether to enable encryption, and we can uh, set the size of the swap partition. Uh, This screen is not at all beginner-friendly and is likely to confuse anyone not accustomed to working with ZFS, but the options all seem to work uh, as I would hope. The installer asks if you are sure you want to wipe and take over disks we selected and then copies his files to the hard drive. Once the files have been copied and we are asked to make up a password for the root user, we then add another new user and are advised to... Add at least one user to the wheel group uh, so that they can SU to root. Uh, This recommendation is not explained, but it is so our user can perform administrative actions. We are then asked to pick our time zone from a menu, and then the system will restart. The installer worked well enough. Something that gave us a little trouble was the screensaver came on while the operating system was being set up and locked the desktop. I do not know what the password was, and I took a little trial and error before I guessed FuryBSD as the password and later found the default password is on the project's GitHub page for the live media. But having the screensaver come on and lock it when you don't know the password could be quite frustrating for a new user. (laughs) Looking at early impressions, uh, my fresh install of FuryBSD booted to a graphical login screen. From there, I can sign into my account, which brings up the XFCE desktop, the installed version of XFCE, CE is the same as what was on the live version with a few minor changes. Most of the desktop icons have been uh, removed with just the file manager launcher remaining. The getting started and system information icons have been removed. Otherwise, the experience is virtually identical to running it off the live media. FuryBSD uses a theme that is mostly gray and white with uh, creamy yellow folder icons. The application menu uh, tends to have neutral icons. Now they're particularly bright, or detailed, uh, or minimal. Looking at hardware, I tried running FreeBSD on my laptop and in a VirtualBox machine. In both test environments, the operating system ran quickly and the XFCE desktop performed smoothly. When running in VirtualBox, at first, FreeBSD could not integrate the mouse pointer or use the system's full screen resolution. Once VirtualBox guest modules had been installed uh, from the FreeBSD package repository, then the mouse integration worked, but I still could not get the desktop to go to a higher resolution. When running on my laptop, FreeBSD was able to make use of my wired network, uh, but could not detect my wireless card. I used the getting started tips file, but the listed tools did not help. I found applications were unable to play sounds in either test environment. I will uh, touch on this again later, but FuryBSD was entirely silent during my trial, regardless of how I adjusted the volume controls. Hmm. Uh, The operating system is fairly lean for a desktop uh, system and requires just two gigabytes of disk space. Memory usage was about average, with the operating system consuming 330 megabytes of active and 290 megabytes of wired memory. Uh, looking at applications, FreeBSD requires a smaller than normal amount of disk space because it ships with few desktop applications. We're given Firefox and the Sunar file manager and XFCE terminal, a settings panel, and a bulk file renaming tool. The application menu contains a launcher for an email client, but no email application is installed. Behind the scenes, we find FreeBSD 12.0 useland tools, manuals, and the Clang compiler. For anything else, we will need to turn to the Package Manager. FreeBSD does not ship with a Graphical Software Manager. Instead, we just use the Package Command Line tool to install, upgrade, and remove software. We could also use FreeBSD's collection of ports if we wish to compile, source, uh, or add customizations. Uh, Firefox worked well for the most part. I had no trouble visiting websites. However, I could not get YouTube videos to play. That's on. Uh, videos would load, but refused to start. I also had trouble with local multimedia. Uh, I installed VLC and MPV. Both players would show video, but were unable to produce sound, either audio or video. Um, I wonder if it was just outputting sound to the wrong device or something. It's hard to say. Could be. Both the sudo and do privilege escalation tools are installed. I found sudo is not configured and needs to be set up manually. Do is set up to grant root access with a password to anyone in the wheel group. Uh, some specific commands can also be run by wheel members without a password, such as a service command to manage background services and the ifconfig utility to manage network uh, connections. Uh, in conclusion, I don't feel as though I have a lot to say about FreeBSD as an operating system is uh, it's quite minimal for a desktop system. The project uh, mostly does what it sets out to do, provide a way to run a live desktop version of FreeBSD and make it possible to quickly install a FreeBSD-based operating system. On the positive side of things, it mostly works well Uh, has some quick reference documentation and uses FreeBSD's solid core as a base uh, and has a pretty vanilla yet functional version of XFCE. Uh, I did have a few complaints. Uh, FuryBSD is very minimal, meaning beyond testing hardware and browsing the web, there's not all that much you can do with the live environment. The installer, while functional, is still a bit scary for new people uh, and especially people not familiar with FreeBSD and ZFS. I also found sound was not working on the test systems. While FuryBSD basically succeeded in fulfilling its mission, I am less enthusiastic about using it than when I tried Nomad BSD last month. Nomad BSD provides a more polished desktop, more included applications, and my sound worked. Uh, the desktop resolution uh, could be adjusted in VirtualBox, and it used less RAM. These two projects have a lot of overlap, while they approach things quite differently. I feel Nomad BSD is currently the stronger choice for most users, while fewer BSD will uh, probably appeal most to people who want something very
0: minimal with a default collection of software. So I would imagine that if you want to test a new laptop in the store, you might also want to check that the sound is working and not uh, being a problem of the distribution you're testing it with.
1: It's hard to say what went wrong there. Uh, It's entirely possible one sysctl command would have switched the default sound device from zero to one or whatever, and it would have suddenly started outputting the right thing. Uh, But again, that's something you'd want to provide a nice graphical tool for or something, so at least the user can try that. Um, I'm almost thinking of something uh, something one of these uh, uh, live system distributions could have is literally, as part of the setup, be like, play a noise out of device zero and ask you, did you hear that? And then just cycle through every sound device until the user hears it. And then, ah, that's the one that's the right for your system. And uh, have them use it. Yeah. like the- It seems like... Uh, a slightly trivial app, but it might actually be a very useful thing to have, of uh, just having uh, a tool that can cycle through the sound devices and find the one that works. Because the problem with doing something like firing up VLC playing audio uh, is VLC will start playing out the device that was the default when VLC started. So you have to remember to restart VLC every time you change the sound device. Whereas if you built a tool that was just going to play sound, it you would stop and start between each switch so that it would. Be able to just
0: go until you find the one that makes the sound come out the right thing. So maybe that's a future development we'll see in that project. And if you have other experiences or similar ones, then let us know. And uh, we will always be good to read about new BSD distributions for a particular purpose. Uh, then next, we have news from NetBSD. Uh, Their LLDB is now working on i386. This is the NetBSD blog. Um, Michael Gorney writes Upstream describes LLDB as a next generation high performance debugger for those who, uh, who have not heard about this before. Uh, they started in February 2012 to, uh, with the work uh, on LLDB, LLDB's, well, LLVM's debugger. As contracted by the NetBSD Foundation, so far, they've been working on re-enabling continuous integration, squashing bugs, improving NetBSD core file support, extending NetBSD's ptrace interface to cover more register types, and fix Compat32 issues, as well as fixing watchpoint and threading support. So um, the original NetBSD port of LLDB was focused on AMD64 only, but in January, they have extended it to support i386 executable, which is 32-bit programs. Uh, this includes both 32-bit builds of LLDB and debugging 32-bit programs from 64-bit LLDB. Yeah. So whether you're running a native i386
1: kernel or using compat 32 to run those 32-bit binaries on a 64-bit OS. Uh,
0: then uh, there's a report from Buildbot failures. Uh, so he writes that I have finished the previous report with indication that upstream broke lib C++ builds with GCC. The change in question has been reverted afterwards and recommitted with the necessary fixes. A test breakage has been caused by adding a clang driver test using env-u. The problem has been resolved by setting the variable to an empty value instead of unsetting it. However, maybe it's time to interpret env-u uh, on NetBSD? And yet another problem was basic underscore string copy and constructor optimization that broke programs at runtime, in particular table gen. The commit in question has been reverted as well. Okay. And lastly, adding a signal stack interception in compiler RT broke our builds. Oh, missing bits for NetBSD have been added afterwards. And I would like to thank all upstream contributors who are putting an effort to fix their patches to work with NetBSD. So now on LDB i386 support. Uh, on to the mysterious user area as a subtitle. Uh, LDB uses quite an interesting approach to support reading and writing registers on Linux. It abstracts two register lists for i386 and AMD64, respectively. Those lists contain offsets to appropriate fields in data returned by ptrace. When debugging a 32-bit program on AMD64, it uses a hybrid. It takes the i386 register list and combines it with offsets specific to AMD64 structures. The offsets themselves are not written explicitly, but instead... Establish it, uh, established from user data structure defined in the plugin. The NetBSD plugin uses a different approach. Rather than using binary offsets, it explicitly accesses appropriate fields in ptrace structures. However, the plugin needs to declare user data, nevertheless, in order to fill the offsets in register lists. What are those offsets used for? That's the first problem they had to answer. According to LDB upstream developer Paul Labath those offsets are additionally used to serialize and deserialize register values in GDB protocol packets. This opened a consideration of improving the protocol-wise compatibility between LEDB and GDB, the GNU debugger. Uh, I'm going to elaborate as this problem separately below. However, the immediate implication was that the precise field order does not matter and can be changed arbitrarily.
1: And then they have uh, talk about what does the differences are
0: for doing native i3.86 support. So they decided to follow the ideas used in the Linux plugin, uh, which most importantly meant having a single plugin for both 32-bit and 64-bit x86 variants. Uh, This is useful because on one hand, both ptrace interfaces are similar, and on the other, 64-bit debugger uses 64-bit ptrace interface on a 32-bit program. The resulting code uses preprocessor conditions to distinguish between 32- and 64-bit API, whether that's necessary, and debug program API to switch between appropriate register data. Uh, They started implementing a minimal proof-of-concept for 32-bit programs on uh, the 64-bit debugger support. This way, they've aimed to ensure that they won't have to change the design in the future in order to support both variants. And once this version has started working, they've stashed it and focused it on getting uh, the native i36 working first.
1: There's more detail on that if you want to read into it,
0: but they get onto uh,
1: i36 support outside of
0: NetBSD. Uh, so while working on i36 support in NetBSD's plugin, uh, they have noticed a number of failing tests that do see, not seem to be specific to NetBSD. See, that's why we have tests. Indeed, Upstream indicates that i386 is not actively tested on any platform nowadays. Uh, So in order to improve its state a little, they have applied a few small fixes that could be done quickly, and they're all linked from there. Uh, Adding missing platform restrictions for uh, x8664 write register test. Skipping tests requiring uh, int128 underscore t the type as a variable. And fixing segment IDs when processing ELF binaries uh, uh, files. And the future plans for that is that they're currently trying to build minimal reproducers from remaining race conditions in concurrent event handling, particular uh, signal delivery to debug programs. And the remaining tasks in their contract are uh, first add support for backtrace through signal trampoline and extend the support to exec info unwind implementations. LLVM non GNU. Uh, examine adding CFI support to interfaces that need to to provide more stable backtraces, both kernel and user land. The second is add support for ARCH64 target, with the third being stabilize LDB and address breaks test from the test suite. And fourth, merge LDB with the base system so that it's available in NetBSD. And yes, uh, thanks to the
1: NetBSD Foundation uh, for funding that work.
0: Yeah, always uh, good to see the progress there. And uh, hopefully uh, NetBSD's uh, LLVM support will be uh, just like FreeBSDs, for example.
1: So next we have a post over on the OpenBSD MISC uh, mailing list. Uh, So a user emails in and says, I've used OpenBSD on my desktop and server for a while. However, they both have an Ethernet connection. I recently got my hands on a ThinkPad x 16 gen in order to ensure compatibility with OpenBSD. I can connect fine via setting etzhostname.if with uh, the netstart tool. However, I need to be able to connect to EduRome for class. I was using Linux on my past laptop. However, I connected through WPA-Supplicant on it. I copied my WPA-Supplicant.conf over. However, when I tried to connect to the network, I got hung up on the spot. The config file works fine on Linux, so the credentials are correct. I'm also ensured the interface was up with do as ifconfig iwm0 up. Uh, Here's the output of my attempt to connect, not debug mode, but console mode, and it shows it uh, going through the attempts. Yep, to authenticate. Yep, and uh, they show what their config looks like, everything except for the uh, actual password. Theo replies and says... uh, WPA Supplicant is definitely a uh, lower-class citizen on uh, OpenBSD. I increasingly wonder why this stuff matters. Uh, transit costs are so much lower than the period when Eduroam was originally set up, and their reliance on 802.11x is super weird in a world where, for the most part, entire cities have open Wi-Fi in their downtown cores. Uh, Edu versus Edu plus transit split horizon problems have been solved Uh Many universities have parallel open Wi-Fi, uh, rate-limiting and fair-share approaches for the open net on unmetered flat rate solve most of this problem. LTE hotspots off of a phone isn't a rip-off anymore, and there are other open networks that exist. Essentially, no one else feels compelled to try to use 802.11x for a so-called semi-open access network, so I think they've lost the plot on friction versus benefit. Uh, he goes on to mention that uh OMBSD has held hackathons on uh, campuses that have eduroam that are locked down similar with 802.11x. And in every case, we've said no way, gotten a, a wire connection with an open network and built our own Wi-Fi network. Uh, and we will not subject our developers to the extra complexity of that. So if you're not familiar, 802.11x is a PKI system for proving that your computer is allowed to access the network, basically. Uh, the idea is that uh, it's also the one case where you end up using WPA supplicant, even if you have an Ethernet wired connection. Yes, uh, you basically on some networks to prevent just anybody from plugging into an Ethernet port. Uh, you then have to negotiate with the switch using this 802.11x protocol to be allowed to access the network, uh, and so WPA supplicant implements that. Eduroam started with that back in the day when Eduroam was very locked down because internet bandwidth was expensive uh but now like uh theo mentions here almost every university has an open wi-fi network beside the eduroam one and so you know while you might want to use eduRome, the open one is easier to use so why why wouldn't they make eduroam easier to use it you know it's still going to have the login requirement and so on but why do all this craziness with
0: 802.11x yeah we use the wired in our campus so that students cannot just arbitrarily plug in uh into each box or in each uh, socket. So,
1: have you ever tried to connect a FreeBSD machine to one of those that requires 802 to 11x? Uh,
0: yes, I did, and it works. So, did you have to use WPA supplicant and all that? Yes, I need to set that up. Uh, it's a bit of a, a change in rc.conf where you say sync DHCP and use WPA, and you configure your uh, WPA.conf.
1: Yeah, I'm unsure what is not working with it on OpenBSD there. Uh, but I can understand why they're not that worried about fixing it. But mm. you know, that's the thing with open source, right? You only have to fix what you care about. <laughs> yeah, it's if it's not your immediate problem, then you kind of put it away. And well, especially when the, generally there's an easy way around it by just choosing to do connect to the other Wi-Fi that's available at the university.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. If there's choices, then you can switch to the easier one. Uh, Yeah, so this is that story and the next one has a bit more of updates for KDE on FreeBSD from February 2020. So that's very fresh. Um, So, oh yeah. Adrian, uh, who was at uh, FOSDEM Dev Summit, uh, provides these updates. So he writes some bits and bobs from the KDE FreeBSD team in February 2020. Uh, we met at the FreeBSD Dev Summit before FOSDEM, along with other FreeBSD people. Plans were made, schemes were forged, and Gruff the Goat was introduced to some new people. Oh yes, yeah, it was there, so <laughs> that's nice. Uh, the big ticket things are that the frameworks are at 5.66 now, Plasma is at 5.17.5, the Beta 5.18 hasn't been tried yet. Uh, and KDE release service has landed 19.12.2, same day it was released. Oh, wow, cool. Developer-centric-wise, they have KDEvelop uh, at 5.5.0, K-User Feedback at 10.0.0, and CMake is at 3.16.3. In the application space, there's Muse score at uh, version 3.4.2 and Elise Eliza. Eliza. Now, is part of the KDE release service updates. Uh, future work, there's always future work. So uh, KIO Fuse probably needs extra real-world testing on FreeBSD. I don't have that kind of mounts, uh, just NFS and Etsy FSTub, so it's not the target audience. Yeah, but if you
1: use uh, Fuse file systems for anything, uh, it'd be worth uh, checking that out under KDE and make sure that the integration works nicely.
0: Uh, K text editor is missing the editor uh, dot, dot, the dot editor config support. That's a small dot here. That can come in with the next framework's update when consumers update anyway. Chasing it is an intermediate release is a bit problematic because it does require some rebuilds of consumers. Uh, what we also talked about, which is not part of this. Um, blog post here is that we would like to have a bit more BSD specific uh, support in KDE or in other desktop environments. For example, that they should be aware about ZFS datasets or applications should be aware that there's a BSD user land down there that has is doing certain things differently and that KDE should also be aware of that. So if there are any programmers listening want to implement this or make this a little bit easier in the BSD space, then they should get in touch and this would help a lot with BSD adoption on the desktop or in KDE in this particular. But it doesn't have to be KDE only. It could also be GNOME and the other ones around. So yeah, cool. Thanks for that update. And uh, the KDE team is working. Uh, they're busy beavers, but uh, they could also use more help, especially with testing. And if you're uh, if you're having a couple of free cycles, then uh, give them... Uh, a note and they will be happily get back to you giving you a bit of uh things to test and try out
1: yeah like even if you're not a big kde user um improvements to the desktop stuff tend to end up having entirely effects where improving anything in the desktop side of freebsd improves it across many desktops not just the one uh and so every bit of help helps yeah (laughs) for sure so next up uh we have a post from ann dickinson uh about FreeBSD Foundation travel grant for BSDCAN. So hi, everyone. The travel grant application process for BSDCAN 2020 is now open. The foundation can help you uh, help people who can't afford to attend events like BSDCAN through the travel grant program. Travel grants are available to FreeBSD developers and users and advocates who need assistance with travel expenses for attending conferences related to FreeBSD development. Uh, So BSD-CAN 2020 applications must be received by April 9th, Uh, and if you want to know more, there's a link to fill out the travel grant, basically explaining what value the FreeBSD project will get from you attending, and then they will use that to decide which people they will fund to be able to attend the conference. Uh, Do you know... The foundation also provides grants for technical events not specifically focused on BSD. Uh, If you feel that your attendance at one of these events will benefit the FreeBSD project and community and you need assistance getting there, please fill out a general travel grant application. Uh, We need to receive it at least seven weeks prior to the event so they have enough time to decide and uh, coordinate and so on. And yes, uh, we definitely would like to see FreeBSD represented at more other conferences. Uh, So if there's a linux fest or something going on uh and uh you have something interesting about freebsd that you can present there uh then we can the foundation can help you get there
0: uh don't go oh i'm not doing enough in the bsd space right now or at the moment we, we all started somewhere it's important to get the word out well yes yeah, so especially if you're going
1: to a non-bsd focused event any freebsd presence at all ends up being helpful uh and especially If you're going to an event that's not full of FreeBSD people already, then having people whose uh, experience with BSD is more as a user and getting started uh, often means they are better able to answer the questions of people uh, who are maybe going to try BSD for the first time than somebody who's been a FreeBSD developer for 20 years and has uh, used nothing but FreeBSD for those 20 years. They're not really going to be able to answer the question of, you know, I switched from Linux and I'm trying BSD and I ran into this problem as much as
0: someone who switched from Linux a year ago and is still pretty new at FreeBSD. Yep, yeah, exactly. And that's uh, ultimately helpful for the users and for the BSD community as well because, hey, it might be someone who will get more involved in the future. But if you don't get this first hurdle up uh, over that, then they probably will never make it. Or if you just uh, give a workshop... Uh, like an install workshop or just present on your uh, experiences so far, this is also very helpful. So uh, it's just a small forum. The worst thing we could say is, well, we are not considering you at the moment, but chances are that you get accepted and then you get to your conference, especially BSD can, which is a big one.
1: So next up, we have a great post by Dan Langill, uh, creating a ZFS dataset for testing IOCAGE within a jail. So he says, first of all, be warned, this didn't work. I'm stalled and still trying to figure out why this isn't working. This isn't complete. This isn't the how-to of how to do it. So he says, uh, I've been using jails within jails for a while. I already have a different setup where I run Poudreur itself inside of a jail. And as you know, Poudreur launches a bunch of jails to do package building in it. But he basically has his Poudreur run inside a jail, creating sub-jails and so on. Uh, But here, I wanted to test an older version of IOcage and get that set up in a jail uh, and try upgrading to the newer iocage and make sure it worked in this jail testing environment before I tried it on my real system. So in this post, he's using uh, FreeBSD 12.1 and testing the upgrade from iocage 1.2.3 to 1.2.4. He also mentions, this post includes my errors and mistakes. Perhaps you should read carefully and maybe read the whole thing before you get started rather than just copying and pasting the commands he did. Because, uh, as he mentions, he put in here everything he did, including the mistakes he made and how he fixed it and so on. So obviously, if you're looking for a tutorial, you want to read it carefully and maybe skip the errors and just do it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so his first attempt, after installing IOcage within the uh, empty jail, to be clear, this is a, that's the name of the jail. The jail is called Empty. It isn't actually empty because you would be, have no commands running the jail if it was actually empty. So, anyway, uh, he created a jail called empty and he installed IOCage in it. And then he did sudo cage fetch and it said, Hey, no Z pools found. Uh, please create one before using IOCage. And he tried ZFS list and it said, You have no data sets. Oops. Uh, he's like, Oh, yes, I'm going to need to jail a ZFS data set. Otherwise, the, the jail doesn't have any access to ZFS. Uh, so he went back to the host and created a new dataset called system slash data slash empty dash iocage. He set the jailed attribute on, and then the mount point is configured relative to the inside of the jail rather than the host. Once the jailed property is on, uh, the jailed property does a lot more than that. Make sure you read the man page. Uh, next, he set the mount point. Of course, uh, you know mount point cannot be set on a dataset uh, if it's jailed. He's like, oh yeah, I have to do that from within the jail. Um, or you could set jailed off, set the mount point, and then set jail back on. But he got that all set up. Now, associating the file system with a jail. You know, please note, data slash empty dash IOCage is not the full name of the data set. As mentioned in man, IOCage takes the ZFS file system name without the pool name. Uh, and that's why he uh, has the settings below mentioning only part of the data set path, not the full path. Of course, when he tried to do that, it says you can't jail a data set to a jail that's running. So he had to stop the jail, then do iocage set jail ZFS data set equals data slash empty cage empty. Get that all set, start the data set again, uh, and now it's running and has a jail data set. Uh, but, but then when I logged into the jail, I did not see my file system and did not have any ZFS capabilities. ZFS less still showed it empty. Um, going back to the Poudreaux in a jail blog post, I extracted and modified some settings and realized he needed to allow mount ZFS equals true uh, and uh, allow, or I think the enforced statfs turned down and a bunch of that uh, set in his jail. So he did that. Uh and now, when he goes into his jail and does ZFS list, he can see um, his data set and the parents. So he's like, score, back to IOCage. So he did sudo IOCage fetch, and it tried to create system slash IOCage permission denied. And he says, ah, turns out IOCage wants to install the IOCage file system at the top of the Z pool, not under his you know, system slash data slash empty IOCage. So he's uh, raised an issue on the IOCage github about this so we can see if if, it will end up working i see yeah yeah so he's stuck in what seems to be a slightly bad assumption in the IOCage code that it can always create a data set at the root of the pool Mm -hmm. there's no nesting there i think most of the other tools you just provide a path for it to do it and you could arbitrarily have it be anywhere but in ioCage, it's literally the pool name slash ioCage is where it always wants to be. I can understand why they would want to do it that way. But yeah, problematic in this case. So if you have a solution for this or maybe know how to implement that. Dan's done the right thing here. I think the solution to this is literally going to be fix ioCage to not make that assumption.
0: <laughs> but it's definitely a nice try. Having Pudrier in a jail has its advantages. Time for Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have a reminder, uh, because people still ask uh, occasionally, uh, the FreeBSD Journal is free. You don't have to pay for it anymore. And the free uh, great articles are available at uh, freebsdfoundation.org journal browser-based edition. The first issue of 2012 will be out uh,
1: in a couple of weeks. But if you haven't read all the ones that came out in 2019, you should check it out. They have uh, Getting Started with FreeBSD, uh, debugging and testing, which includes uh, testing frameworks and using GDB and setting up LDAP and, uh, or diagnosing problems with LDAP using dtrace. Um, then they have FreeBSD for makers, which covers like hardware hacking, running a single on Raspberry Pi, setting up mes- uh, media servers, and so on. Then the July-August issue is about containerization, whether that's using EasyJail or IOCage or Nomad, uh, hold the bells and whistles great how-tos there. Then the security issue covers changes to Capsicum, uh, improving memory permissions, configuring full disk encryption, etc. Plus, that one has uh, an interview from BSD Now a number of years ago with Pavel Dodek about the uh, original porting of ZFS to FreeBSD. Uh, So we gave them permission and they reproduced that uh, interview uh, in the the journal, which is a, a great way for people that you didn't watch the video episode back in 2013 when we did that live
0: and <laughs> it's yeah, a good historical perspective
1: yeah and the network uh virtualization uh issue that came out uh in november and december it covers uh migrating jails between machines arranging your virtual network on freebsd uh, and an interview we did with uh, kirk mccusick
0: oh yeah that was also a very nice interview Uh, If you want to know what's going to happen this year, they also have the 2020 editorial calendar up. So uh, the January-February edition will be FreeBSD in Research. Then March-April will feature file systems as a general topic. Then the May-June issue has network performance in it. and July-August will feature benchmarking and tuning. Uh, in September and October, contributing and onboarding. That's probably interesting for the newbies, but not only. This, especially if you want to join into the FreeBSD project. And November, December of twenty twenty, far off from now, but still uh, workflows and CI. So, if you want to contribute an article for any of these issues, uh, well, not the ones that just came out, but for the future ones, and you're kind of like the file systems export or benchmarking and tuning guru, then get in touch with them, and they would love to get an article for you.
1: You just send them some text, and they make it all fancy and add the graphics, and it gets copy edited and so on. Uh, so it's it's not. Overly burdensome. Just uh, whip up an article and send it in. I've done it like at least half a dozen
0: times. <laughs> yes, it's it's very nice. And this is this is a publication, and you can say, "Hey, look, Mom, I'm in an article in a journal now." Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, continuing with our Beastie bits here, uh, the Serenity GUI desktop is running on an OpenBSD kernel. Uh, this Twitter or this tweet says here from Joshua Steen.
1: Let yeah, me has Got a tweet with video showing. Uh, running Serenity on OpenBSD. And it looks like he even took the port so far as instead of just uh, patching the Serenity system monitor to read uh, OpenBSD's more limited slash proc, he actually modified the libcore to use the KVM system properly and get all the data uh, from OpenBSD.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll see a bit more updates from there or someone running like a real-world... A system on that uh, that's using—that's uh, used somewhere in, in production somehow. Uh, any kind of home hobby thing uh, its also nice to have with Serenity. Uh, then we have the open source parts of macOS, which is Apple's operating system with the BSD roots. And oh, that's a long list here. That's a bit of a scrolling.
1: Yes, basically they've taken all the stuff that was available on opensource.apple.com
0: as a tarballs and put it up into um, GitHub. Ah, so in case you want to uh, make some references to older
1: versions? Yeah, well, basically, if you actually end up making changes, it'll be poss- easier to port them forward over, over newer ones down there on GitHub. But just in general, it's you know useful to have access to GitHub. They do note that they don't actually have commit history here. They just have a commit for each different version. They basically extracted the old tarball, checked it in, and then extracted the next tarball and committed the differences each time. And so it specifically says, um, you might want to download the GitHub file diff, uh, Chrome or Firefox extension, uh, because most of these commits are too large to view on GitHub because they're literally just everything that changed. Yeah, that's a big diff. It looks like they also have a meta uh, meta repo here that actually
0: is the tools they use to make that repo. Just in case there's more development happening in uh, that space, or people want to port utilities.
1: Uh, I imagine it was also just a convenient place to put all the tools they had to write to be able to
0: do this. So it's out there, yeah. All right, people can take a look. And uh, last in our list of Beastie Bits is the FOSDEM videos are available that we mentioned in the last episode already, but now we thought it would be good to uh, get it out to people. Uh, so here's the list of the Dev Room talks, and you can click on each of those to get to the video recording. Uh, it's a little easier to read than the, there was another link that's just
1: a directory on the file server of every video in that room, which includes, you know, the the Saturday where the talks weren't about BSD and so on. So it's easier to go through this and you get the actual names of each talk so that you know what the video is, so that when you're looking for the a specific talk, you can find it rather than having to guess. Is that file name look about right? <laughs> they have the intro or just welcome to the BSD dev room. Uh, orchestrating jails with nomad and pot, um open SMTPD uh over the clouds, how to set up uh high availability and so on. But NetBSD, not just for toasters. <laughs> uh FreeBSD around the world, FreeBSD uh with LLVM, uh breaking your BSD kernel, how to do fuzzing, KDE on FreeBSD. NetBSD's native APIs a user in perspective, so looking at audio and input and so on, discussing and encouraging the adoption of NetBSD's audio and input APIs to make third-party software work better. Uh, then uh, we mentioned uh, Raishu's got his talk about X11 and Wayland, a tale of two implementations, and looking at uh, building a window manager uh, slash compositor with those two different backends and how those differ, and then finally graphing FreeBSD disk utilization using Prometheus, which is a, a stats exporter tool. And it looks like they may want to process the output of Gstat, which is a, a very useful program for getting data about how busy your disks
0: are. Yeah, it's good to to graph these sometimes to see what what's going on. All right, yeah, it's great to rewatch them if you can't, if you couldn't make it to FOSDEM and if you want to, or maybe, oh, I did catch that one bit while I was there, so I rewatched this segment to, to get it again. So yeah, thanks to FOSDEM for all these recordings and the BSD folks who ran the dev room and uh, yeah, all the people who presented, of course. All right, it's time for the feedback and questions section that many of you are always looking forward to. We get questions, uh, sometimes a little less than we would like. So we ask you to send us more, anything that you're struggling with or just have a question, uh, anything that you would want to attempt maybe in the BSD space and want a bit of an advice. Uh, send all these things to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll get either directly in touch or mention it on the show. And so you get your question answered eventually. Uh, the first one who wrote us uh, for this week is Michael with Installing with ZFS. And Michael writes the following. Hi, guys. As always, thanks for the great show. It's hard to believe that you've not missed a single episode in all this time. You guys rock.
1: Yeah, it came pretty close a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but in general, yeah. Uh,
0: I guess we started in 2013 and it uh, just kept going. It's, it's yeah, it's an operation, yeah. It's a well-oiled machine by now. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a lot of people behind the scenes that make it also work. Uh, it's not just Alan and myself and JT. With that aside, uh, I've been struggling with a specific aspect of the FreeBSD install for some time, but I've not wanted to bother you with it because it seems like something that should not be an issue. But since you regularly solicit questions, excellent, someone listened, uh, here you go. The last several FreeBSD installs I've attempted all started out with the intention of putting FreeBSD on a ZFS file system. Good. Um, every one of them resulted in FreeBSD on a UFS file system. Huh. Here's how the experience typically goes. Download the 12.1 memstick image, use the to copy it to a USB stick, boot from that, and hit return a couple of times to get to the menu where I select the install type. Uh, pick auto instead Yep. Poke around menus for a while and come in the realization that there is no way to select the partition on the NVMe drive. It's either all or nothing. Pick auto UFS because I need to have other operating systems on the drive too. And I don't have the time or knowledge to go through the manual steps. The sad part is that this capability on UFS has worked flawlessly since the mid-90s. Is there any way to get the UFS side of this uh, team to talk to the ZFS side of the team? So it's not actually UFS or ZFS sides of the team.
1: It's just the installer script. Now, the partitioning tool is not the same as the one from the mid-90s. It was the one that was introduced in FreeBSD 9.0. Um, if you choose the UFS menu, when you go in there, you can, using the editor, actually make a ZFS pool, but it will not be set up with all of the ZFS magic and boot environments and stuff that I've done uh, in the ZFS menu. It mostly comes down to changing that partition editor is very difficult. It's A bunch of C and it's all string manipulation and it doesn't really maintain state in a consistent way and it becomes very hard to do things like uh, set the ZFS layout in a way the user could modify it and automate what the different layout would be. Uh, So yeah it's been kind of on my to-do list to fix for a while but it's difficult. In the end you could have something where you would use the partition editor and you'd make the ZFS partition and then you would pick it for the zfs side but you know if you're thinking of the slightly more typical install where you know you're setting up zfs and you want to say i want to pick these six disks and use them the auto zfs works very nicely for that whereas if you had to use the partition editor and manually set up six identical disks and then select specifically the right partition from each of those six disks to install on that could get complicated but yes the case of i only want to use half of the NVMe in my laptop for ZFS, because I want to keep the Windows installed, that's already there. Uh, and having that work and have it integrate nicely with like, have it install an EFI manager, like Refind or something even, uh, would be really, really nice. I don't have the time to work on that. The best I've done is uh, wrote a page on the FreeBSD wiki on how to manually uh, set up ZFS, the same as the installer in that case. I uh, originally wrote that uh, for a friend who needed it, uh, but ended up using it myself when I uh, installed my laptop, which again, I came out of the box with Windows on it from Lenovo. I booted the Windows once, shrunk the partition in half, and then installed FreeBSD on the other half. For a long time, i had never booted the Windows again. <laughs> uh, more recently, I had to boot the Windows and use it to connect to a VPN that had a nasty VPN client and so on, but... Yeah, manual works. So yeah, it's yeah, it's not the UFS or ZFS team. It's just the installer people. Uh, and yeah, the UFS side has not got a lot of love lately. It's just that partition editor is kind of difficult, but it's also not something you could easily replace with shell scripts either. So yeah, it just requires someone with uh, the time to do it. You know, there's been quite a bit of talk about trying to build something nicer in Lua uh, and try to commonize it instead. You know, right now the installer is a bunch of separate components that only kind of fit together. Uh, and the automation of it is uh, kind of difficult in some places. Uh, In particular, I think it's not that possible to automate the layout of the partitioning if you're actually using the graphical partition editor. So, yeah, building something better would be great. It's just that requires a bunch of effort and a huge amount of testing. To not break the old stuff. Yeah. Getting that ZFS menu in there so that there was just an easy way to get... A good, a well configured ZFS out of the box was a big step, but you're right. You know, uh, having it support only a partition on a disk would be uh, a big improvement. It's just difficult.
0: So uh, hopefully, there's changes in the future. Um, if someone wants to do that, uh, feel free. And uh, otherwise, you have to drop to the shell and do everything manually, like partitioning and setting up the system. And
1: yeah, so like I said, you can use the partition editor. Uh, If you choose the UFS side and go to the partition editor, you can create a FreeBSD-ZFS partition type, and it will actually make a zpool for you. Uh, But it won't set it up with boot environments and so on. Yeah, that that you have to do. uh... You know, it will get you started. It will let you boot. And uh, The other problem is usually in either case, I think, or maybe not, uh, you also want to be careful that it doesn't overwrite your Windows EFI bootloader stuff uh, with FreeBSD stuff. Um, I don't think it will by default. It's smart enough to know if there's already an EFI partition there that it didn't create; it won't touch it. But that also means it won't make FreeBSD boot by default either. So that's again a limitation of I think it's called SAID, Sade S A D E is the partition editor. Admittedly, I like it better than the one that was in Sysinstall
0: as a partition editor. But you know, it it definitely has limitations. Okay. Uh, so that's the state uh, where it is at the moment, and it's not uh, UFS versus uh, ZFS, folks.
1: Yes. Uh, random question. I saw on the hackathon HackMD for FOSDAM that somebody had mentioned working on improving the other end of the installer at the very end to like set up a graphical environment by default. Ah, yes. Uh, that was uh, suggested. Yeah, did somebody work on that? Because I know I I added to the notes the link to my half-finished version and asked someone to
0: commandeer it and finish it, please. (laughs) I think no one has volunteered directly, but it it was brought up again. So I think it's um, not just you thinking about that, because desktops are kind of a thing now, and we could run these right after the installer. Uh, yeah, otherwise we'll uh, connect the dots internally for people who want to work on this. So um, thanks for that question. And next up is Mohamed uh, with a server freeze uh, issue. Uh, Muhammad writes, Hi guys, big fan. Been listening to the show ever since I first heard of it five years ago. I think I'm the only FreeBSD user in my country, Jordan. So listening to the show makes me feel at home and motivated. Thanks for all the awesome work. Keep it up. It's not always the case.
1: Uh, you know, I kind of thought that other than Andrew, who works for me, uh, that we were the only real BSD people in, <laughs> in my area. Uh, but we hosted
0: a meetup and 11 people showed up. So people came out of the woodwork. Yeah, you never know who is also using it and you don't know about it. So could very well be that there's more than just you.
1: Yeah. So uh, in this particular case, if you happen to live in Jordan, uh, you could write in and be like, hey. I'm another FreeBSD person. I exist
0: too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, connect me to Mohammed here. Uh, okay, so uh, his question goes now for the question. I have two servers for two different clients. One is a VPS running PHP list, the other is a dedicated server running Drupal site. Every now and then, they just freeze. If I try to SSH to them, the session just stalls, so my Nagios check doesn't send me an alert. Even using the console or pressing Control uh, Alt Delete uh, doesn't help. I have to power cycle them. Other than FreeBSD 12.0 release, Nginx, PHP, and MariaDB, the only common thing is the following message. Uh, So there's SO NuCon, uh, listen queue overflow uh, 6145, already in queue, awaiting acceptance with one occurrence. So that's a lot.
1: Uh, So in particular, so this is. Um, a socket, so that PCB number 0xFFF is basically a memory address. I think it's uh, netstat dash something, you can look it up in the man page to make it print the PCB number, uh, and that will match to some socket that's listening on a port somewhere. Uh, and basically, it means that uh, so when a program opens a socket to listen on, like when a web server opens port 80, uh, it specifies a queue depth So what that is, is how many connections are trying to come in will the kernel allow to pile up where the web server has been told, hey, someone's trying to connect, but the web server hasn't got around to running the accept call on that socket yet. So in this particular case, there are 6,145 connections that are waiting for the application to accept them, meaning that the application seems to be really behind on accepting
0: them uh, or isn't accepting them at all. Yeah, so that's a bit of a problem uh, so he has faced this error before but it usually didn't freeze the servers i have S O accept q equals 4096 to handle temporary spikes when i did this for another client the extra connections would just be dropped and the server would at least be reachable any idea what i'm missing uh you
1: probably still want to keep that so accept q number even lower like probably 128 or 256 or something uh just because there's no reason a that connections will be coming in so fast that your application can't connect them. Mostly you need to, uh, again, look, going back to looking at that um, NetStat man page to find the, I forget the flight, that lets you see the PCB, but figure out which port it is that these are piling up on. And then you can figure out which daemon is a problem and you can probably figure out what the problem
0: is. Uh, because, yeah, that seems weird. So there's, uh, the, the network stack in FreeBSD is mostly auto-tuning, but if you, like, give it too much load and of course
1: well I think in this particular case they're changing the default for so accept queue yeah it's it's kind of difficult to tell what's happening because you know if you didn't happen to have an open connection to the server when it uh, stopped accepting new connections or whatever you can't see you know if you what you might try to do is leave top running and see what top says when the system freezes Uh, you might be able to tell which application is using a lot of CPU or something uh, or what state it's stuck in but that does seem strange, because in general, nothing Useland can do would cause the whole machine to freeze like that. It's it's unusual, yeah. The f- other thing I might suspect there is if you have some kind of loop happening, specifically if you're using, say, Nginx as your web server, and you have it proxy passing to itself, then it will just keep making new connections to itself in a loop and, and
0: could eventually cause a problem, I guess. But it's only every now and then, so it's not every... It's not, r- like, reliably... But in general, I wouldn't expect,
1: uh, like, I've not had one of my machines hang in that fashion that I
0: can remember in 10 years. If someone else has had this problem and found a solution, then send this to feedback at TV. So we'll uh, continue this uh, and send it to Mohammed. well, he, since he's listening to the show anyway, so you will get that. Uh, but it could be that other people have have this hat before and then found a solution for it. Uh, he, he closes with by the way I recently got my Canadian PR so we'll hopefully see you guys at BSD Can this year fingers crossed oh yeah that would be great great see it's not uh, the distance that you have to go it's just that you want to go and there was plenty of people at BSD Can that you want to meet in the BSD space not just us <laughs> people have been coming to BSD Can before we were there anyway so <laughs> we with us being there it's just a, a little added bonus here Uh, Next up uh, So Mohamed Thank you for that question And uh, Yeah Keep up the BST spirit In Jordan Uh, Todd is next uh, With a ZFS question Oh We've all been waiting For those Um, So Todd writes I had a few questions About creating A ZFS pool Performance And best practice So my VDEV pool will consist of 12 times 8 terabyte drives. The workload is primarily for streaming, storage, and backing up my server via ZFS sent. I may run the RJL or VM on the host, but I have a second 4 times 4 SSD pool for that. Okay. Another requirement for the backups is they must be encrypted. My initial thought was uh, times... Twelve VDF rates at three. However, other options could include eleven times rates at three or two times rates at two mirrors. What would be your thoughts to balance performance, space, and tolerance?
1: Yeah, twelve ride rates at three is a common configuration. It's one I've used on machines before. that's probably fine. um Depends on how much redundancy you want. A twelve ride rates at two is probably fine as well. But yeah, if you're thinking rates at three, it's probably good and go with rates at three there's not much reason to do an 11 wide one and then try to have a mirror or something you know if you have 12 disks doing an 11 wide and then you'd only have one disk left and you could use it as spare but uh, you might as well you know have raid Z3 instead of doing a raid Z 2 and a spare basically so yeah the 12 wide raid Z3 is probably your best bet for space and, and fault tolerance and so on although for performance you might be better off uh, with say two, six wide RAID Z2s um, that will lose you an extra disk as you'll have four parity disks in total instead of three, uh, but it will give you more IOPS over the 12 wide RAID Z3. But if your main stuff is streaming and backup, uh, that's not going to make a difference. You're not going to need the IOPS really.
0: Okay, then uh, the other question is, uh, should I full disk encrypt the entire pool or just create a data set for the backups? Is there a performance hit or a benefit to either way? So it
1: depends on how you want to do it and how you're doing your backups. Uh, if you are your backups coming from another ZFS system, uh, or are they coming in with like Bacular, rsync, or something like that? In vanilla FreeBSD right now, your only option is the full disk encryption. Uh, so you could either full disk encrypt all the disks and then build the ZFS pool on top of that, or have your regular ZFS pool create a zvol, uh, Gally encrypt that, and then format it with UFS or something but that seems really weird to do whereas in the future you will have the option of of ZFS's native encryption Uh, and the main advantage to that is you could have data be encrypted on the um, original system with the key get backed up to the backup system without the key so there's no way for the backup server to ever see the plain text of the data and that has some advantages uh, but that requires it be encrypted on the original system uh, and it requires the original system also have ZFS. Um, so it depends what you want to do. The main thing is, if you're looking at a file server, sure, you do full disk encryption. Uh, but if the server is running all the time, then data is available unencrypted all the time. The encryption is only really providing you the benefit of when you need to return a failed hard drive uh, to get a replacement, It's you know the data is not playing on it. But aside from that, it's not providing you much advantage. Whereas with the uh, ZFS native encryption, you can encrypt different file systems with different keys and you can unmount them when you're not using them. And then they can't be read until you mount them and, and input the key. Again. Uh, that has some advantages. But again, it comes down to how you're using it. If you have it mounted all the time, then it's really the same as having done Gelly. Is there some update when we get that feature? Sometime in the next couple months. Okay, hard to tell, yeah. Uh, it'll, yeah it'll go into head sometime in the next couple of months with the idea that it will have a number of months to mature before we cut freebsd 13.0. Okay If you have freebsd 12.1 or later, you can install the openzFS port uh, and try it. Um, I just you know no one can make any guarantees about how good it is, but it is basically the same code as, as other people are using so it's probably pretty safe. I, I just, I can't make any personal guarantees about it. But in general, yeah, it's the same ZFS code, but newer. And so it's, it's safe. Yeah. Be careful. Don't put it in production yet, but it's good for if you want to try it out or... Great place to test it is on your backup box. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> just, you know, make sure you test restoring too. D- that, yeah, always. <laughs> A backup box is only as good as the last time you tested the restore. The backups are all theoretically, theoretical until
0: you restore them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Everyone wants to have restore, but no one wants to make backups in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Todd asked specifically,
1: are there any other considerations when making such a large pool? By ZFS standards, this is not a large pool. For example, the large pool I created uh, last year was 12 VDEVs, each of 12 12 terabyte hard drives. It's <laughs> so 12 times 12. Um, and so in that one, there were some considerations. Uh, the disks were spread across four separate chassis, and we created each 12-wide RAID Z3 from three disks from each of the four chassis uh, so that if any one of those got unplugged, uh, we would only lose three disks in each VDEV, and so it wouldn't fault the pool. Good thinking. So even though there were like 36 disks in that chassis that all went offline at the same time. It was just three each from all 12 devs. Okay, still redundant enough to continue working. Uh, and we had some spares uh, spread across those chassis as well. Yeah, that needs a bit of thinking. But no, in general, yes, uh, a 12-wide RAID Z2 or two 6-wide RAID Z... Oh, sorry, a 12-wide RAID Z2 or three or two 6-wide RAID Z2s Uh, will give you a good mix of space and tolerance the two raid z2s gives you a bit more performance although if you're just streaming storage and backups you probably don't need it in the extra space uh you're fine with doing a raid z2 or three uh if you were going to need more performance out of it uh for example if you didn't have that 4x4 ssd pool um then you'd probably want to go with raid 10 which is you know uh, you would do six sets of two discs each in mirrors. Uh that would give you a lot less space though, um, but would give you a bit more IOPS. But the uh the write throughput would actually be less than doing this RAID Z3. Since so many of the disks would be parity, you would only get six X the performance of the of one disk for writing, but you would get 12x for reading. Whereas with the RAID Z3, you're gonna get uh nine X the performance for reads and writes for streaming. Uh for random, obviously hard drives are slow. Uh, and each vdev is limited to the IOPS of of the slowest disk, whereas if you do six separate vdevs, you would get six x the slowest disk. Yeah, that pretty much uh, hopefully addresses your question. But yeah, I'm looking forward to more conversations like this as part of the uh, home lab uh, event we're going to have at BSDcan. Uh, more news when the schedule for BSDcan comes out.
0: Yeah, that's uh, certainly an interesting uh, prospect of having. And uh, there's always, uh, you will do again also the, uh, what's it called, the, the buff in the break, during the lunch break? ZFS buff? Probably, yes. Probably, yeah. So we'll see when the schedule comes out for BSD Can. In the meantime, uh, thank you for sending in these questions and everyone else for uh, listening to this episode. Hopefully you liked it. Uh, let us know uh, at feedback at TV, and uh, we'll be back next week, of course, with a fresh new one from the BSV space.